This is the Marketing Podcast Network. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Uh, hello, and welcome to Uncorking a Story, now part of the Marketing Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Kamala Shamsi. Kamala is the author of several novels, including Home Fire, which won the Women's Prize for Fiction, was longlisted for the Booker Prize, and was a finalist for the International Dublin Literary Award, among other honors. She joins me today to talk about her latest novel, Best of Friends. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Kamala. Thank you very much, Mike. Kamala, I have to ask, um, because I ask everybody the same question. <laughs> it's one of my rules. Uh, where does your story as an author begin? Um, it begins when I'm 11 years old. And I was at my grandfather's house, and I was a bit bored. So I was looking at his bookshelves, because that's what I did when bored. I would look at a bookshelf and find something. But I was looking at his bookshelf without much hope, because you know he had books that I was never interested in. Um, and then amidst all these sort of books of the Greek classics and history, there was this blue spined book called All Dogs Go to Heaven. Mm. And as it happened, my pet dog had died not that long ago in the first great tragedy of my life. Um, so I pulled out this book and I started to read it and I was completely engrossed. And then my mother said, we have to go home. So I said to my grandfather, can I borrow this book? And he looked at it and he said, I've never seen that book before in my life. I don't know where it came from, take it. So I took it, I went home, I read this book about dog heaven. I thought about my dog, I wept. Um, and then my best friend came over and he and I always used to swap books. 
And he, like me, also had a pet dog who quite recently died. And I said, you have to read this book. It's about dog heaven. And he said, why don't we write a book? I don't know why he said that. He doesn't know why he said that. Um, but we sat down that day and started to write, you know, what we called a novel together um, about our dogs in dog heaven. And I haven't stopped since. What was the name of that book? Do you remember? I do. I still have it. It was called A Dog's Life and After. And, oh. and the thing that I'm particularly proud of, it was A Dog's Life, comma, and after. And I'm thinking 11 years old and we put a comma in there. That's pretty good. That's good. I, I love this story for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which is the fact that we lost our dog back in June, um, who was uh, she was 16 um, and uh, was just the greatest dog. I mean, I, I, she was a 16 year old golden retriever, so she lived a very long life. Um, so that speaks to me. But you're you mentioning your grandfather and his yeah. bookshelf. So my grandfather had a great bookshelf. Um, and uh, we I grew up in Florida. He was a New Yorker. He was a doctor and he was a, a World War II doctor. So he had all these great books about, um, you know, the the, the war. Um, and then uh, going through his bookshelf, he had all these medical thrillers because he, you know, he was, you know, just spoke to him. And I started reading some of the medical thrillers by Robin Cook. Um, of yeah. And I just got sucked in. And then years later, um, when I was much older, after he had passed away, my my fam, my my parents um, sort of took over the, the apartment and I, I was going through his bookshelf and there was this book on the bookshelf but a very interesting cover. It was called The Godfather. Uh -huh. And I'm like, I need this. It's just, just I, I got so engrossed in this book. And and I had, I, you know, I read it before I saw the movie because I was still kind of young. I was too young to really. It just the book was one of the the best things I ever read in my entire life. But uh, yeah, I love that story about your grandfather having this bookshelf. Yeah. And then yeah. also we never knew where this book came from. And I'll tell you the weird part of it is, is, you know, some months after this happened, I said to my best friend, I said, can I have that book back? all dogs go to heaven because I want to reread it. Because of course, at that age, you're just always rereading the books you love. And he said, he said, you never gave it to me. I said, what do you mean? He said, we started writing a book and, and I've been meaning to ask you for it. Um, and I know he wasn't lying because, you know, he, it's not something he would do about a matter like that. So I never saw this book again. I don't it know just, where it, it just it, it appeared and disappeared. Appeared and disappeared. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, that's so neat. Um, when, when did you, um, think to yourself, uh, or maybe it was back when you were 11 that, that you were going to be a writer for a living? Um, well, apparently I first declared it to my parents at the age of nine, but I remember it was just because when you're really young, adults keep asking you this annoying question. What do you want to be when you grow up? How do you know you're nine, you're eight? Um, and all I knew at that stage was I loved reading, but I thought if I say I'm going to grow up to be a reader people will laugh at me. So I'll say I'm going to grow up to be a writer. I didn't really mean it. I really wanted to grow up to be a reader. Um, but when once I started writing this book with, with my best friend, and I really enjoyed it, and then we did another one together. And then when I was 15, I did one on my own. And I remember being 15 years old and, and finishing this and it was a fantasy novel. I was, you know, in that sort of Tolkien phase of life. And I remember finishing it and feeling that because I had finished it, and I no longer had a novel to work on. I was feeling a little bit empty, like something mm. really important was missing. And I, and I remember in that very, you know, self-important way of 15 years old thinking, 
if I don't do this, I won't be happy. Um, so I always had the sense that it was what I wanted to do. And then I went to Hamilton College in upstate New York and, you know, did creative writing and then went and did an MFA. And, and by the time my MFA was over, I had a, a first novel that had been picked up for publication. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't, I couldn't actually sort of afford to live off my writing until around my fifth novel. So it was always the dream, but it always felt kind of impossible. And how will this really happen? Um, and I still sometimes have the sense of, oh, I'm, I'm really doing this. You know, so between that first and fifth novel, what were you doing to uh, sort of make ends meet? I had a recurring position teaching creative writing at Hamilton. So I would go and teach and, you know, earn some money. And then I would go and live in Karachi for a bit in my family's house and do a bit of writing. And then and I'd get, you know, I would, as the years were going on, I was getting you know, a little more money. Um, and then I'd come to London and spend money for a few months. And then <laughs> Yeah. back on the teaching and writing rotation well it's an easy town to spend money and that's for sure it really is yeah <laughs> well tell me about your journey from you were you born in karachi mm -hmm. um I was, I was born and and you know as i mean a lot of the the novel there's you know it, the first half is there these two girls and they're 14 years old in karachi and and um their lives aren't my lives but that context is in that world of you're growing up and it was um really you know novels were my savior in that bit because the thing people don't tell you about military dictatorships is if you're young they're very boring because dictatorships don't like fun and they don't like youth culture so there was very little of that immediately around um but i used to just disappear into novels i used to read a novel a day when i was sort of you know wow. eight, nine, 11 years old um, and then it was also a great moment in, in life because it was just when everyone was getting, well, everyone who could afford them was getting VCRs and there was a huge industry in pirated video cassettes. So we were sort of sitting there, you know, watching all the, the sort of Brat Pack movies and, you know, Molly Ringwald and Rob Lowe and listening to George Michael and Tracy Chapman and Madonna. And, and so it was this weird disconnect between there was the world right around you. And then there was this other world that you were coming at either via books or film or music. Yeah. And Tracy Chapman doesn't get enough credit, I think, for what she's yeah. given to the, uh, the musical world. Um, I, I love, I love her music. Um, she's so good even beyond the hits, but, mm -hmm. um, so when so when when you went to college was that your first time coming to the states or had you been to the states before? Um, I had been to the states when I was seven. I think. Wow. There was a family holiday to LA to go and you know Disney World and all that. Um, I had I mean, but it wasn't sort of leaving Karachi was not an exceptional state because many summers for the summer holidays my family would actually come to London um, and my favorite aunt lived in Paris so. Um, you know, I had a sense of the world beyond kind of thing. Um, and my sister had been to university in America, um, in Pennsylvania, two years before me. So, of course, you know, she would come back in the summer and winters with the stories and the photographs. You kind of felt you you sort of knew that world. But of course, you arrived then. I was so I sort of thought I was so prepared for it. And my sister had gone and loved it from the first moment that it was actually a shock to discover I was homesick um, for the first few weeks. And then very quickly, I, you know, started to love it. But it is sort of you don't when you've lived in one place all your life and only left for holidays, you don't think of things like, you know, you will miss a certain kind of rice, but there you are missing a certain kind of rice. Yeah. A certain kind of rice. Well, what can you tell me about uh, best of friends? Um, so best of friends is a novel in two parts. 
And really, it started from my interest in the particular nature of childhood friendship, which is somewhere between the friendships you have in adult life and your relationship with your siblings. Um, I don't know. Do you have friends who you who you were friends with in childhood? Oh yes. Yeah. So, so I moved. Um, I grew up in Florida. I moved to Connecticut um, in 1983, mm -hmm. and uh, entering the fourth grade. Um, I, I, my best friend, um, was also new to the school that we were both in. So, you know, we were the new kids, uh, to this day, I talk to him all the time and see him all the time. And, um, I'm the godfather to one of his uh, children. There you go. I mean, they're very particular kind of relationships. And, and my sister many years ago said to me, well, you know, the friends we make as adults are our friends because we have something in common. But our childhood friends are our friends because they've always been our friends. Um, so with this, I wanted to write a story of such a friendship. So they're two girls, Zara and Mariam. And when we first meet them, they're 14 years old and they've already been best friends for 10 years. They can't even remember why they ever became best friends. It sort of precedes memory or character or value or anything. Um, and it's that age where you know, they're sort of just becoming aware of adolescence and sexuality and, you know, who they're looking at and who's looking at them. Um, and secrets and evasion start to enter their friendship for the first time. Um, and so it's a story of that period of time. It's also a moment in Pakistan's history where, you know, dictatorship gives way to democracy. A woman comes to power. And if you're a young girl, you, can, you think anything is possible and you make possibly foolish decisions that land you in trouble. Um, and the second half of the novel is london now and it's that stage of life where actually now you are grown women you're in your 40s they're both very powerful but in really different spheres of the world um one's a human rights campaigner i mean a civil liberties campaigner, and one's a venture capitalist um and they're still as close as they ever were but the differences between them are no longer things they can ignore and the shadows that were there in adolescence are much darker and and sort of throw a much you know a sort of engulf more of their friendship and it's it's how you deal with actually the fact that you are now very different people and if you met for the first time as adults you wouldn't be friends and you know yeah. that yeah interesting question it, it also kind of talks to like how, how how we just change as we grow up and, and what happens to us you know yeah. um it uh sometimes sometimes sad i, I i'm um doing my 30th high school reunion in uh in a few weeks well in in november um and uh i'm always curious to see you know what what became of the people who uh because a lot of these people i i went from the fourth grade with all the way through high school um and it's interesting to see you know how how people have changed and and you know it's uh but uh, you know I'm, I'm sort of a people watcher myself i think most most authors are right i mean you you can't help but but be a people watcher when you you know, create, create stories. Yeah. Well, I mean, people are interesting and I mean, and I think it is particularly interesting to look at the people you've known through your life, uh, because it's so interesting the way that in some fairly essential way, people seem to not really be very different from their eight-year-old selves or their 12-year-old selves, but in other ways, you're completely surprised by them. So, you know, the class extrovert may actually now be quite an introvert. I was very, I was very shy as a kid, you mm. know, I had no confidence. Um, I was that kid, if the, if the teacher sort of asked a question and I thought, oh, I know the answer, but I wouldn't raise my hand because I'd start saying, how do I know I know the answer? Maybe I just think I know the answer. And what if I get the answer wrong? Um, you know, and I was that kid. Um, and I can still, 
kind of locate a tiny bit of her somewhere very deep inside me, but it's tiny and very deep. Yeah. Um, and if you told me then that I would be, you know, doing book events and going out and talking about all kinds of things, and you know, I would have thought, you know, I would have believed, I would have been very pleased by the the writing books part, but the the public part of it, and the fact that actually I enjoy the public part of it, I think that would have really shocked me. Um, and so similarly, you look at your friends and you, and you also, I think you do wonder how they're seeing you because they've known you forever and how do they compare you to who they thought you would be? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I always ask authors, you know, what's the secret to being an author? And a lot of people tell me, well, you have to be a big reader, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's sort of par for the course. I think you have to be like a really curious person. I think you have to, um, be able to look at other people and then just wonder, okay, what if, well, you know, what's their story? What's their backstory? What's happened to this person? Um, what, what role does curiosity play in your writing? I'm actually less curious than a lot of people. I know I'm not one of those people who strikes up conversations with strangers. I mean, I know people who do, and I just don't, I just feel that, you know, that too many, I mean, I love all the people in my life, but I thought I, you know, I don't want to necessarily meet someone new and, and get to know them, but but I am, the people I do know, I'm, I'm curious about, and you notice them and you, you notice the way they, they respond to the world around them. Um, I was thinking the other day about those personality tests that you're sometimes asked to do, I mean, online or wherever it'll be. Yeah. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? Um, are you, do you, when you're in a social gathering, do you want to be the center of the party or do you want to hang back and observe? And my response to this is always, I don't know how to answer these because in what context? And I think that's my particular interest is how we shift in different contexts and to look at, and so it's far more interesting to me to think about the people I know and how they shift from one context um, to another, but also to recollect, I think, um, and maybe this is an important part of the writer's life is you, you know, you're living through a moment and you see it one way. And then five years or 10 years or 15 years later, you just turn around and think, oh, I got that wrong. You know, I didn't understand. And so it's actually that curiosity about um, how one moment can actually be many different things, depending on how you see it. I think that's what I'm really interested in the, in the writing, which is why, I mean, it's been a very long time since I wrote a novel in which there's just one point of view. Because um, I'm really interested in the in the different points of view and, and how a, one moment can be so differently observed and felt by the same people living and by different people living within that same moment. Yeah. You said something interesting to me about um, sort of going out and doing the sort of publicity for for your books mm -hmm. um, and something that you enjoy doing. And I know a lot of authors, yeah, they enjoy the writing part. Um, you know, because that's the, that can, to me that it's also the fun part, you know, creating the story, living in that world, a world in which you've got pretty much complete control, um, until your editor comes and says, change this and that, but, or consider changing this and that. Um, but you know, some authors I talk to, they say, Hey, look, they, they have a hard time with the publicity. It sounds like you've, you've almost embraced it a bit and tell me a little bit more about that. Um, so I should say that that the writing is the best part, but it's also the worst part. And complete control means complete responsibility, um, and that can be terrifying. Um, but you know, I, there's something. Yeah, obviously, at a certain point, it can get exhausting if you're endlessly on trains or flights and going here and the other. Um, but 
I've always liked traveling. And it's one of the great blessings of my life that that writing, you know, people will will put you on a plane and pay, pay for you to go somewhere new and meet a whole bunch of people. And I like, you know, I think a lot of writers like other writers. Um, I've made a lot of friendships in sort of literary festival circumstances. Um, it's wonderful if you've read someone's work and you really loved it and then you're sitting on a stage with them doing something. So, I mean, the bit where if you are sort of on your own on the road going from one bookstore to the other, I mean, that is, you know, that's just tiring. And and as much as, I mean, I always do enjoy having an actual audience to speak to and, and get something back. Um, but the most fun stuff is when someone says, well, there's a festival in this place, go for five days. Um, whether it is to um, Lahore or Vancouver or um, London. And for these days, there'll be a whole bunch of writers sitting there. Um, and you can talk to each other and, you know, get to know each other's work. And many of the really important friendships of my life have come about through that. Wow, that's, uh, that's beautiful. We all need our, our tribe, so to speak. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. also, I mean, there is also the other part of it is if you spend a year or two sort of sitting with a novel on your own, and then you get a chance and I'm, you know, if, with me, this book is very new. So it's, it's quite new where you, you get to go out, say, onto a stage in front of an audience and talk about it and you can feel the audience response. Um, and you can see and then people, you know, have started to read it and they're coming and talking to you about how they felt about it and how they're reading your characters. Um, and that's really lovely. It feels, you know, when you've grown up being a reader and loving books, the idea that someone else is now your reader and possibly feeling the way about your work that you used to feel about the books you loved. Um, that's really moving. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's sort of a sense of validation there too, I would imagine. Um, yeah. Cause oftentimes, you know, you write something and you don't necessarily know how people are reacting to it until reviews come in or, mm -hmm. you know, there's maybe a little bit of buzz, mm -hmm. uh, which is why I love stand-up comedy. So I, I tend to write comedy mm -hmm. and, but I also will perform stand-up and, I get so much out of that because, you know, you, you tell a, a funny story or something that you've written, you perform it, and then people are either laughing or they're not laughing, you know, so you know if it's working or not working almost immediately, yeah. and you know, kind of what you need to edit and change and, and, and sort of punch up a little bit. Um, so I hear what you're saying when you're on a stage and you're, and you're doing something, you know, and you're getting that energy from people there, there is a certain amount of I don't know, excitement and motivation that just comes from from those experiences. Yeah, yeah. It is, I mean, it's, you know, it's lovely that we're back to live again, events yeah. again, because, you know, it, it just feel you do feel it, right? I mean, the energy of an audience is a, is a very palpable thing. Oh, there's nothing like it. It's, it's to me, it's terrifying sometimes, you know, oh, I'm, like, no. I'm always nervous when I before I step out there. But um it's always, I'm always happy and to do and it. Sometimes you start speaking and you say exactly the, the thing that the day before an audience loved and today you're saying it and they're just kind of there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how audiences are like that. You know, something that, that what I would say kills one day could just bomb the next. Yeah. <laughs> then, 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 then I get in my head and worry about you know, what am I doing wrong? Um, but that's just me. Um, I do have some fun questions for us, and I'm curious because you mentioned um, getting uh, pirated video cassettes uh, mm -hmm. when you were young. When you were growing up, what were some of your, the favorite things you used to like to watch, um, whether TV or movies? Um, so we had one channel in Pakistan, and um, there was not a lot on, but there was there was the pirated stuff. Um, so all the the sort of those teenage 
teenager Hollywood movies, you know, whether it's The Breakfast Club, first, oh, first Bueller's Day Off was a, was a huge favorite. Um, and then you'd get, you know, sort of TV shows, whether it was sort of Family Ties or, oh, Dynasty, Dynasty. Oh. Um, everyone in Pakistan loved that. Um, but also, of course, there were the older movies because I'd watch what my parents were watching. And we all grew up with a certain amount of news. Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz was the first great movie love of my life. Um, and then you were also, you know, watching whatever came on TV. So there was every evening there would be one um, English language program. And very often it would just say in the, in the news listing English show, which didn't mean from England it meant in the English language. Um, and because the, the military regime, you know, didn't like certain kinds of things, it, but it liked action stuff. So you would have things like um, the A-Team and Chips and <laughs> um, Airwolf, you know, um, and all these sort of very actiony things with you know, these sort of strong men at the center of things. Oh, and Star Trek. Star Trek was and remains a great love of my life. Oh, you know, Star Trek's an interesting one because it was, you know, while it was science fiction, I mean, there was it was much more of a social commentary on kind of what was going on, you know, in, in our culture anyway. Um, but I'm curious, having been exposed to all of these, you know, Ferris Bueller's and and Breakfast Clubs, Dynasty, um, A-Team Chips, Chips, one of my personal favorites. Um, when you first came to the United States, were you confused at all that, you know, life here wasn't really like that? You didn't see random vans being blown up? Um, not, it, I'll tell you the thing that surprised me, which... I hadn't noticed or I hadn't thought about was, you know, you go to campus and you're like, oh, it's not the racial melting pot that it's meant out to, made out to be. And, you know, yeah. there, there are the international students together, there are the South Asian students together, the black students together, the white students much larger, you know, and that, that was a real surprise to me because, um, and now I think about it, I'm like, well, I mean, it's not that I was watching TV shows that had, you know, all kinds of integration going on. Um, but it was that kind of thing. So it's not, I mean, I, you know, you always know that, you know, drama is drama. So you don't expect to see things blowing up. Um, but I remember that coming as, as a bit of a shock because yeah. I think it had sort of, maybe sort of watching, you know, I don't know, uh, New York cop shows. You just get, got the sense that actually there was a lot more of everyone living together. Right. Right. Well, tell me about uh, musical artists. I know you named a few before, uh, George Michael, Madonna, Tracy Chapman. Who did you enjoy listening to when you were growing up listening to? Um, those, I mean, you know, I very much put in in, in the book the, the ones um, that I loved. So, and also, you know, in Pakistan, again, you were getting stuff via pirated cassette. Um, so you were getting really the mainstream stuff. And, you know, I have all these friends in England who were like, well, none of us, when, you know, when they were sort of teenagers, they were too cool to be listening to Wham and Duran Duran. And I was like, well, that's what we were getting. You know, Wham, Duran Duran, Culture Club, Paul Young, Brian Adams. Um, that was the stuff that, that was coming through. Um, Tracy Chapman, of course, I mean, you know, was a, a voice like something else. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, Fleetwood Mac, you know, um, pretty mainstream stuff. Yeah, that's no, all, all great. I, I love Duran Duran. I'm not afraid to admit it. No, let's never be afraid to admit it. <laughs> um, do you feel as if you have an inner child inside you? Well, you know, I'm doing the thing that I wanted to do and I love to do when, when I was 11 years old and 13 years old. So I'm, I'm, you know, basically living the dream of an 11 year old. Yeah. So, is, yeah. is writing um, a way of feeding your inner child? 
um i'm not sure it needs feeding because it's just so there <laughs> uh, but i think i think being i think there's something that we all know how to do as children which some people grasp the habit of and that is storytelling and imagining um and i think writing certainly helps that keep going for me and also that sense of joy and wonder you know when if you're writing you you it isn't so, i mean there are days when it's just the daily grind and i have to sit at my desk and get the next thing done but on the best days it is it's fun um, and you do have a sense of something amazing is happening here um and and you don't have that sense of you know here i am at my desk again doing this thing i've been doing for years and also because every novel is like a new adventure a new thing um so there's a constant sense of renewal and excitement um so yeah very much i think it does it it for all that it can be very very frustrating at times um there's a very deep pleasure in it which which does connect back to a kind of childhood sense of pleasure and fun and wonder yeah do you do you consider writing to be therapeutic for you at all? Um, not really. Only because I, I mean I tend not to think of it in in that way. But you know, it is a space where you can think and contemplate um, in certain ways. But um, no, I mean I think you know for me sitting in, if I if I need something to be therapeutic, I'll either go for a walk or I'll sit and I'll talk to you know, people close to me. Mm -hmm. Writing that's something, and also because I suppose ultimately, you know, therapeutic sounds a little more like you know, there's there's something I'm writing in order to do something for myself. Um, and actually, when I'm writing, I have to be quite strict about the fact that there may be all kinds of things I would like to put in a novel, but if it's not good for the novel, it has no place there. Um, so there's no room for sort of self-indulgence and there's no room for sitting and thinking, well, here are the things I want to work out. Well, the novel actually has moved on somewhere else. So you work them out with your friends. Yeah. Or the therapist or whoever you've got in your life. Um, yeah. Interesting. I like that. Uh, there's no, no room for self-indulgence there. Um, I think uh, that's, <laughs> that's a lesson I need to learn. I, think. <laughs> I can be very self-indulgent in writing. Um, what about, um, when you're when you're sitting down to write something, you've got a blank you know, screen or blank page. Um, how do you feel when you're staring at a blank page? It can be scary, you know. Um, it's somewhat helpful to have done that before and gone through that before. I remember there was one point, um, and actually it was with my last novel, Home Fire, where I got. There was a point where I just thought, I don't know if this is working at all. And I wrote to a friend of mine who's a novelist and I said, I'm just stuck. It's sort of feeling dead on the page. I don't know where it's going. I, I don't know that it's going to work. I, you know, I had this whole long paragraph of everything that was wrong. Um, and he wrote back one sentence. So you're writing a novel. And I thought, yeah, okay, yes, this is, this happens. This is part of the process that, that for me, starting out in particular is is incredibly hard and it's you don't know if it's working um and it's very easy to feel panicked it's very easy to think oh maybe i should try something really different um and you just have to kind of hold your nerve i think and stay the course yeah you know what i'm curious about is um you know you mentioned growing up reading a, a novel a day right 
Um, do you think readers realize how much goes into writing a book, whether it's just the thinking about it, whether it's the um, the writing, the rewriting, the I mean, do they do, do you think people really think that, hey, this this takes a couple of years to to do? I hope not. You know, when I when someone is reading my work, I would hate it if they thought there are lots of different drafts that went into this and, I, you know, lots of I, I wanted to feel as if it exists in this version in which it had to exist. Mm. Um, and that, you know, I don't want them to be thinking about the writer. I want them to enter the novel and live in its world and feel that this is the only version of it that could have been. Wow, that's, uh, that is a profound statement. Um, not thinking about the writer. Uh, I think I think in, in that regard, writers are different than than actors almost, <laughs> you know, where we're act well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I might talk myself out of this one. Um, because I always think actors as, as being people who um, you know, love to be seen for who they are versus the characters they play. But then I could argue that um, you know, a real good actor, real talented actor. You know, no one thinks about the actor. They just think about the part they're playing. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, it's an interesting one with actors because we do have such a strong sense of them as, as you know, celebrities. Um, and I think sometimes that can get in the way that, you you know, you, you watch something, you're seeing the celebrity. Um, but the really good actor or the really good director or editor, whoever's responsible for it, there has to be that moment where you, you enter it and you forget that Meryl Streep is Meryl Streep and she is simply that character. Mm. Yeah. Great choice with Meryl Streep, by the way. She's right? I mean, she's well, that's, the, that's the ultimate one. <laughs> you know, it's like, I think of her and I'm like, I've never seen Meryl Streep in a bad role. Like there's never been, I can't point to a Meryl Streep movie and said, well, I did, really didn't like that. Um, the Devil no, the, Prada is one of my favorite movies. Oh, it's a fantastic, and it's, it's a great movie for an airplane, as is Mamma Mia. I mean, these are movies. Oh, my gosh, forget yeah. about it. I love Mamma Mia. You can, you can just watch them over. I mean, I've watched Mamma Mia so many times, I can't tell you if I'm on a plane and it's there. You just, it's like my comfort blanket now. I started, my, my daughter, so I have three kids. They're triplets. They're 20 years old. And mm -hmm. one of my girls, Maggie, we um, she was a hockey player. We went to Sweden her freshman year. She was part of an exchange program. And uh, so she lived with a family, but she fell in love with ABBA. And and part of it is when they were babies, we used to play ABBA a lot in the car because we couldn't take any of the like kid music. Um, so we we gave them a diet of the Beatles, ABBA, Rod Stewart, you know, the classics for kids. Um, and uh, but she, she loves ABBA. So I'm watching Mamma Mia with her. And then we watch the second one and I start bawling during the second one where where she's having the baby. Uh -huh. um, because I just remember like, boom, like my kids were babies and now they're grownups and oh my gosh, but what, what a great, what great movie. Both those movies are really good. Yeah, they're fantastic. And I've seen, I saw Mamma Mia on the stage because it was in London yeah. on, about three times before it even become, became a movie. And you have to tell your daughter, in fact, the whole family needs to come to London to see the ABBA Voyager concert. You know, my daughter um, has been talking about that. She's it's, been talking about it. It is like nothing you've ever seen. It'll blow your mind. Really? That's with the holograms? Well, that's the thing. They're not exactly holograms because you expect holograms. But in fact, you see, you know, Abba walk onto a stage and it's them. They're people. Yeah. It's, it doesn't look hologrammy. Um, and it's so it is it is a kind of tech that you haven't seen before. And the really interesting thing is the first song they play is some really lesser known Abba song. 
And when I heard they opened with that, I thought, what a weird choice. But the reason is through that first song, you're not listening to the music. You're just saying, what am I looking at? Because mm. these are people, this isn't a hologram. This isn't some kind of projection. These seem to be people on a stage, except I know it's not because they are at the young ABBA. So it's weird. It's, it's mind blowing. Yeah. And the music, of course, will make you weep and sing. And oh. that's exciting. Yeah, I'll have to go when my emotions are regulating better than they are right now because I'm getting teary just thinking about it. No, no, go with your and just stand there and weep. It'll be so good for your unregulated emotions. Oh no, I went. I saw Billy Joel this summer in um in New York. I so cried we're three times. Our age here, aren't we? Yeah. Oh please, yeah. um, yeah. I cried three times during that show. Yeah, of course you did. At 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 yeah. at songs that are not sad. You know, I was so you happy to be to there. Uptown girl, were you crying to Uptown Girl? No, I started with um. Well, he opened the show with um, uh, what was the song from that show, Bosom Buddies? Um, 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 uh, my life. He opened the show with oh, yeah. my life, yeah. and yeah. I'm I'm 48 years old, uh-huh. and I'm going through, you know, this time in my life where my these three kids who I've been their father for 20 years don't need me as much anymore. They're all kind of living outside of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going through this period thinking like, well, what is my role in life now? Like, it can't be just to be the income earner. I have to have a bigger purpose than that because, you know, and I'm thinking, oh my God, this song, it was just speaking to me in a way. Yeah. And uh, I started bawling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had one of my customers, I had a client with me and she's like, why are you crying at my life? And I'm like, oh, I need a moment. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting this one. It's part of why I want to write this book at this moment, because I think when you're in your 40s, it's it's this interesting midpoint, right? You you aren't old, but you aren't young. And you, you're starting to think about, you know, all the relationships you've ever had and the ones you're going to have going forward and who matters and who's going to be around for you. Um, and it, it in some way, I think things like childhood friends seem more important to you in your 40s than they did in your 30s. Mm. You know? your 20s when you were busy making new friends and reinventing yourself and and now you're like well the, you know my childhood friends are going to be the through line that run all the way through my life and they'll come a point yeah. when, you know they they'll hold the childhood version of me I mean you're talking about inner child I think one of the things that keeps the inner child going is if you have those childhood friends and you're you still laugh together at the things that made you laugh when you were 12. Yeah uh, and we do yeah. um and in many cases we act like we're 12. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> when we're together yeah. it's interesting and they keep you i think your childhood friends keep you honest in a way because they knew you before you were whoever you are right now whoever you think you are right now they will bring out you know hey i you know you, you might do this now but i remember when you did x y and z and yeah. then you laugh about it you're maybe mortified by it but you know yeah. th- they do hold a little bit of um uh we, we made these movies when i <laughs> When I was in high school, we made these movies and I was always I was I always had a bit of a writer in me. I always wanted to work in movies and stuff. But um, we filmed these movies and they I mean, if they got out now, they, mm-hmm. they were not politically correct. <laughs> you know, we were being, you know, 16 yeah. year old boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, but I, I have them all and I digitize them all. And I tell my brother, I have a twin brother. I tell my twin brother and our friend Nick, I said, if you ever piss me off. Yeah. I will release these movies Thanks. and then you will all be in trouble. Yeah. Well Me done. too though. Me too though. So yeah. Yeah. um, 
what words of advice, if you could, if you could whisper words of advice into your younger self, seer, maybe it's that 11 year old who saw or first came across the mysterious book, mm-hmm. All Dogs Go to Heaven, um, or I should say the mysteriously appearing and disappearing book. Yeah. Um, what words of advice would you give that younger Kamala? Um, I think that Kamala, who was still quite shy and self-conscious, um, I'd say live a little more lightly. You know, everyone isn't looking at you all the time. You can mess up. It's fine. You're 11 years old. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to get wrong, things wrong. Don't worry about it. You know, take those risks. Um, it's okay if you fail. Yeah. Take those risks. It's okay if you answer that question in class and it's not correct. Exactly. Right? So, yeah. Um, people are always wrong, getting it wrong in class. And the teacher is there to teach. You're not the teacher. Yeah. Great words of advice. Um, well, where can people buy Best of Friends? Um, wherever you buy books. You know, go to your favorite local independent bookseller or you can go online and, you know, find book retailers or on on. Uh, Penguin Random House website. Yes. Wherever you buy good books. Wherever you buy good books. Or uh, bad books. We're not judging <laughs> it. All the books. Um, and then if people want to learn uh, more about you, uh, do you have a website? Do you have social media that you're active on? What, what can you share uh, with us? I am on Twitter at Kamala Shamsi. And I'm on Instagram at K Shamsi. All right. Very good. I will be sure to put those in the notes so people can look you up and follow you and do all the things people do on social media. All right. Well, no, don't do all the things people do on social media because some of them are a bit dodgy. <laughs> That's why I have to, to be honest, I have to avoid Twitter because I just get angry. I just get angry when I, yeah. when I go down different rabbit holes on it, but, um, that's, that's life. Uh, Kamala, I so appreciate you coming by and letting me uncork your story. It's been a very, very fun conversation. Thank you very much. Mike. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.